1 Kings 18 and 19. And of course, yesterday was, you know, the famous Christian holiday uh, of Halloween, uh, you know, that we all celebrate. And, uh, and so I, I thought that this, uh, this message is, is pretty timely. We're going to talk about fear uh, for a little bit, but maybe in a way that you haven't heard before, okay? Um, this, is, this is part of the story of Elijah that we don't really like to talk about a lot, okay? Um, it doesn't like, put him in a very good light. <laughs> this story doesn't, okay? Uh, we're we're going to see uh, a couple things about um, what, why, why he was afraid, what made him afraid, and then maybe what we can uh, learn, uh, learn from that here. So we'll begin reading in 1 Kings chapter number 18, and um, we're all thankful for the opportunity to preach. I just hope that uh, we block out any distractions right now just for the next couple minutes, and let's uh, hear from the Lord here. In 1 Kings chapter number 18, I'll begin reading in verse number 36, if you want to follow along here. 1 Kings 18, 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art the God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned the heart, their heart back again. Then the fire fell, then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. And then it goes on to say that Elisha gets... You know, however he does it, he kills the prophets of Baal, the false prophets, hundreds of them, on, on Mount Carmel, okay? Then it goes on in verse number 44, we pick up at the end of that verse. Um, the Lord tells him, uh, uh, go up, say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And so after a three-year famine, God sends the rain, okay? God answers Elijah's prayer, verse 45 and it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. You see here that God is definitely guiding this man. He's answered his prayer in a spectacular, amazing way. He sends the rain. God's hand is upon him. It says, And he girded up his loins, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Uh, 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. Here's where the next story begins, okay? We wish this wasn't in the Bible, but I'm glad it is because it has a lesson for us. 19.1. And, and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow, about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life. He is scared now. He's afraid. And came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. Now he doesn't want to be around anybody. He's by himself. Verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. Now he's so depressed that uh, he's nearly suicidal. And said, It is enough now, O Lord, take, my, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. 
I mean, we just went from the mountaintop to the valley in like three verses, okay? Um, God had, again, spectacularly and publicly answered Elijah's prayers, okay? What, what had happened? Death to Satan's forces, his false prophets. I mean, this is, this is not just a, a thing between Elijah and a bunch of guys, you know, who are false priests. It's a, it's a spiritual warfare thing between the uh, forces of darkness and the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual warfare showdown on Mount Carmel, right? And what does the Lord do? He shows to the entire world, and it says that all the people publicly admitted, whoa, the Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think Satan was happy about this? No. Okay? So, so what happens? On Mount Carmel, this is the showdown, right? Um, now, we go from uh, 1 Kings 19, uh, that uh, we, we know from 1 Kings 19 later on that God still has a plan for Elijah, right? He still, God still has stuff for him to do. Now, Elijah doesn't know that. God's going to tell him. But when God has something for you to do, there is still like, you know, some more stuff. You're invincible until he allows you to do all that, okay? Which means that the devil could not kill Elijah, he wanted to, I'm sure he did. God's not going to allow Satan to kill Elijah. So he settles for the next best thing. Here's what he does. Satan, and this comes from a, a missionary I heard this from. His name is Wayne Shemesh. He uh, preaches, he's a missionary there in uh, Thailand. And, um, and he pointed this out I had never seen before. Here's what Satan does. He paralyzes Elijah with the fear of tomorrow. Amen. Okay? He knows that, okay, I can't kill this man, just like Job, right? The, the Lord says, hey, you can't touch this guy. You can do anything else to him, but you can't touch him. Here's what Satan does. He has Jezebel, who is kind of like, like the figure of, you know, um, uh, at, at the top of the food chain of everything that is dark and evil in false religion. And Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah and says, Hey, guess what? You know, I don't like what you did, and you're going to die tomorrow. You know what would have been very, very easy for Jezebel to do? Is tell a messenger, go take a sword and stab this guy in the heart. But she doesn't. She wants to make him afraid and paralyzed in fear so that he doesn't do anything else. He doesn't do more damage. He just kind of goes away and disappears into the darkness. That is what Satan wants to do when God still has a plan for our life. He still has stuff for us to do, okay? And Satan can't touch us, but he wants us to get in this, uh, this zone where we are so scared about uh, what's going to happen and, um, and so that we don't do anything at all for the Lord. Satan can't use like a real gun with real bullets, so he settles for a stun gun, okay? He stuns us. And uh, the point of a stun gun, you know, is that you don't move <laughs> after you've been hit. And that's what Satan wants to do. Uh, he, he wants to fill us with overwhelming anxiety so that we can't move forward through faith. And it works for a little bit with Elijah. He has to learn some things. 
he goes and retreats into a cave. Um, he starts thinking irrationally. He doesn't make sense. He needs to recoup a little bit, figure out what the next move is, and then he needs to get out of the cave. Amen. Right? So that's what I want to speak on tonight, the fear of tomorrow. The fear of tomorrow. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing here. Father, thank you so much for assembling everyone here in the room tonight, people that couldn't be here, uh, that might be under the weather, that are listening online. I pray that as we're, we're talking about Satan's tactics, that you would not give him uh, any room in this service, uh, in our minds, anything like that. I pray that you'd help us, help us to learn these lessons, bless everyone, help us to uh, make the changes we need to, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so you, you remember the song Brother Gillum uh, sang recently. He says, I'm free of the fear of tomorrow, right? Uh, free from the guilt of the past. But I wonder if we can honestly sing that song, each and every one of us, that we are free from the fear of tomorrow. You, you and I read the same news, right? Uh, if you dare, right? Uh, you, you read what's going on in the world, and you read kind of, it, it, it doesn't take a, a, a prophet or a son of a prophet to see the handwriting on the wall. Um, what, what's happening? Sometimes you confuse reading the news for reading the book of Revelation. It's, it's kind of lining up pretty, pretty close to the same thing. You see what's going on in politics in America. You see just the, the downward spiral that's happening. It's, go, it's going downhill very, very fast. And when I tuck my kids in, in bed at night and I say a prayer over them and I walk out the door, I think, what's America going to be like for these kids in 30 years? I, I think it'll be very different if the Lord tarries his return. But the, those types of fears, like the global fear, fears and the national fears and the fears, what's going to happen to our churches and, and so forth, those aren't what usually grip us, Okay. What I'm talking about here is not like sudden fear. I'm talking about anxiety that so overwhelms you, there's nothing else you think about. Uh, it paralyzes you where you can't move forward. You're afraid of attempting something, uh, something else. So there's a difference between uh, fear and anxiety. Fear is a healthy thing sometimes, okay? If you've ever um, been on the road and you had a near miss with a, uh, uh, with a collision, like time just slows down and you are the most alert you have ever been in your life. You have the reflexes of like, you know, I mean, you're like a, like a superhero or something. I mean, for that little moment, you are like very, very focused in and God made us that way where we can react very quickly if we need to be. You've heard of, um, you know, when a, a little kid is maybe uh, trapped under a car and you've heard of a, a mother, you know, having this mother strength and picking up the car. I, that, that happens, right? Uh, and that, that's that sudden fear. That, that's sometimes a good thing. It'd be very strange if we just weren't afraid of anything, okay? Uh, that's not normal. But what the unhealthy fear is, what the fear that the Bible warns us about, the fear that got Elijah, is the anxiety type of fear. Okay, um, when you're when you're anxious about tomorrow, when you're in a constant state of fight or flight. Okay, so when when you when you're fearful. Okay, say say you're about to get in this wreck, you have this fight or flight kind of response, right? And that's a good thing. It's not a good thing to live in that mode. Okay? 
Anxiety is you living in that mode. You're constantly on edge and, and, and frustrated and, you know, um, thing, things bother you and you cannot get out of your mind either something that happened and you think is going to repeat or something that you think is going to happen that hasn't happened yet and it, it just overwhelms your mind, the fear of tomorrow, Okay. Uh, I remember when uh, I, was, I was in Bible college, I had the little red uh, convertible, and I was, um, so it was in that, that L.A. desert area, and uh, through, through suburban neighborhoods, the speed limit was 50 miles an hour, uh, and, you know, the, the houses were way, you know, it, it was safe, but, I mean, that's a, it's a high, uh, high velocity type of speed limit in that area, so I'm going 50 with a passenger in the car with the hood down. And I can tell you, I mean, I remember this. It's not like this flashbulb moment. Like I, I have frame by frame memory of this thing. And I'm, I'm going the speed limit, but it's, that's, that's high. And then a, uh, a brand new Suburban is coming the other way at a T-bone intersection and runs a red light going the same, the same speed. And, um, and we just hit, um, I, I T-boned him. And so both of us are going 50. It's very, very high speed. Um, he's coming across. And again, my, my, my hood is down. My passenger had just taken off his seatbelt because we were like a mile from the college, right? And so he has a seatbelt in his hand. We hit that thing, and it was like everything just like slow motion. You know, the, the car started turning, skidding, and he has the seatbelt in his hand, and I can just see him... Uh, he, he's, he's, uh, he's levitating off of the seat, right, in slow motion, holding onto the seat belt and then lets it go. And he flies in the air. About, he lands about 30 feet away, hits a telephone pole in midair. I'm spinning, 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 screeching, you know, land out in the, in the dirt somewhere. And this car, you know, he's driving with his family. This car is way over there. And both, both of us um, got up, and he, my passenger, had a couple scratches on him. That was incredible that that, that happened. But, like, that, that was the fear scenario. Anxiety is what happens in the years after, okay? I am the worst passenger to, to, <laughs> to, to sit and not be driving, okay? Like, I do the driving uh, in our family not because, you know, I'm you know, some misogynist or something, I, uh, I'm, I'm scared, okay? So, you know, if, if Melanie's driving and she's on, on the road and, you know, I'm, I'm constantly, you know, hitting the invisible brake, you know, on my side of the, my side of the car, and I'm, I'm pushing on things, and uh, it was a couple years after this whole wreck thing happened, I had a guy who was driving, and, um, and he, he screeches the brakes, and like comes a couple inches from uh, hitting a person, and he was only going like 20 miles an hour. It, even if he had hit this person, it w- wouldn't have been a, a serious issue. But it screeched, and something just like came out of me, and I screamed like a blood-curdling, <sighs> and it like almost bursted his eardrum. He just looked at me like, what in the world? And I was like, I've never done that before. I have no idea. I have no idea what just happened. Okay. You know what that's called? Anxiety. <laughs> you know? It's, it's constantly being on edge because of something that, that happened. 
It's, it's being on edge about something that may happen in the future. Um, that, that's an example of a car wreck. I'm talking about like a spiritual wreck. Okay? Uh, something that we just, it, it has crippled us so that we're not doing anything for God anymore. Uh, it's very difficult to even contemplate doing that. Are, are you following what I'm saying here? Okay. That, that's the type of uh, fear that I'm talking about, the fear of tomorrow. So tonight we're going to talk about, we're going to examine the fear of tomorrow, the cause of it, the purpose of it, and the way through it. So the cause, the purpose, and the way through. First of all, the cause of it. So overwhelming and crippling anxiety, first of all, is not of God. Okay? God is not about the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So that type of anxiety where we are afraid of attempting great things for God anymore, is of the devil. And it is satanic. When, what we just read in this story is that like, the, the, the fear that comes upon Elijah, it wasn't necessarily just from Jezebel. It was the guy that was operating the puppet of Jezebel. The guy pulling the strings. It was a satanic thing. The devil want, didn't want any more of this Elijah interfering. The devil knows that if he gets fear to inhabit our lives and live in there and sets up residence in there, there'll be no room for faith. Amen. Okay, So fear and faith cannot share the same space. They can't cohabitate. They're oil and they're water. Okay? They, can't, they can't share the same space. They're light and they're darkness. So there's the spiritual warfare that's going on between faith and and fear that wants to occupy your heart. Faith doesn't be, uh, fear does not belong in the temple of God. Okay? So when fear lives in us, fear is like a, like a squatter okay? that starts living in the house of faith. He does not belong there. But he set up shop. And we got to figure out how to get him out. You see? Uh, that's what's happening. So when the disciples are on the boat in the storm and they are scared out of their minds and they have literally God himself on the boat with them, uh, Jesus rebukes the storm. And what does he say? He says, O ye of little faith. So what he's saying is that if you had faith, you wouldn't have fear. You have fear, therefore you don't have faith. They, they are total opposites. When we have faith, we don't have fear. When we have fear, we don't have faith. You see? You see what I mean? So, uh, we, we used to take um, uh, field trips. I don't know if we do still in the, um, in the Christian school here, to the petrified forest. Okay? And you know, one thing I know about the petrified forest is that the trees that I saw when I was there, they're still there. And they're still petrified. <laughs> Petrified things don't move, okay? And when we're petrified, five years from now, you're going to know where we're going to be. We're going to be exactly where we were. Because when we're afraid, we don't move very far for God at all. We want to stay in our cave <laughs> where we feel safe, okay? And like you know, Brother Eli said during the men's thing, we, you know, we'll stay in our cave and we'll eat steak, okay? And that was a very different kind of sermon, um, very different than what I'm talking about. And so if you want more details, you can ask me afterwards and buy me a steak and I'll 
I'll give you that, that, <laughs> that sermon. Okay, so when we are stunned, we don't move. Okay, why? Why the fear of tomorrow? Because the devil wants us worried about things that might be instead of the blessings that are. He wants us to think about vain imaginations and things that aren't really reality instead of the blessings that God is pouring down on us right now in reality. So uh, God answers uh, prayer. He sends Elijah the rain. He sends a lot of rain after a three-year drought. Elijah had just finished running in the rain, okay? Like downpour storm type of rain. He is literally drenched with rain, meaning like he, he is drenched with the blessings of God and answered prayer on his life, like literally. And he can, it's, it's the blessings of God that he can see and feel and touch. It's not his imagination. It's like the height of his life. God has powerfully shown up in his life, okay? He is swimming in the reality of God's blessings. And then Satan gets him focused on the possibility of what might be. I mean, he's ignoring what God is pouring out on him because the devil gets him thinking about what might be tomorrow, the fear of tomorrow. Fear hangs you on one moment, Okay? It ignores everything good that God's done in the past. It ignores everything good that, pro- that God promises to do in the future. And he hangs you on this little moment and it goes over and over in your mind and it keeps replaying on this infinite loop and you, you, you can't get it unstuck. Right? Um, one dark moment that you keep playing over and over to the point where that one thought becomes everything. It grips you. It makes you fear a dark tomorrow. So fear will try to get you to ignore what God has done already, and fear tries to encourage you to forget all of that. Here's what we said, okay, about this thing. That type of fear is satanic, okay? It's evil. It's not just you being afraid. It's something beyond you helping you be afraid and very afraid. I want you to look with me here um, in, in chapter 19, verse number 9. Here's what happens. Here's what's really interesting about this. 19.9. Um, here we go, 19.9. Uh, and it talks about Elijah here. It says, And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, that's Elijah saying, he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel, uh, for have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left that seek my life to take it away. Now here's the thing. A couple of verses before this, he leaves his servant behind. Okay? His servant is probably not a Baal worshiper. Okay? Like, he's a... He's a, maybe a, a Bible college age student, okay? Elijah knows very well he's not the only guy that is serving the Lord. He just left his servant behind, who definitely was. A couple chapters before, he meets Obadiah, who uh, is another servant of God, who is hiding hundreds of people in a cave who are pastors, who are preachers, who are prophets. Elijah knows quite well that there is at least numbering in the hundreds of people who are for the Lord, on his side. And here's Elijah giving his story to the Lord. He says, 
I'm the only one left. And you know what? I think if you put Elijah on a lie detector, he would pass that thing. He really believed in his mind a lie. You see? And you know who the father of lies is? The devil. This is a satanic thing that happens. So what does God do? He doesn't just drop him with a truth bomb. He doesn't just say, you're an idiot, okay? And you're probably a liar. And you just, you, you know exactly what the truth is. No. He asks some questions. He says, you need to eat, you need to sleep. You need to repeat. <laughs> repeat that a couple times. Then he says, uh, Elijah, look, uh, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to have you be in this cave. And he appears to him in the earthquake, in the fire. And then uh, God was not in the fire. God was not in the earthquake. God appears in, you, you remember the story, in the still, small, what? Voice, right? And so God very powerfully says, I am with you. You have my presence, and I'm giving you my word, okay? Now, after all of that, and that would have been incredible, Here's what happens again in, uh, in, where is it, verse number, I think it is uh, 13. And so, uh, and it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in a mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, what doest thou here, Elijah? Repeats the same question. And has Elijah learned his lesson yet? Here's what the verse says. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant and thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left that seek my life to take it away. It's a word for word. <laughs> Repeat what he said before. You know, you know what, that, what that tells me? Okay, When someone is really gripped in fear, I mean gripped, they're not thinking straight. Okay, And they cannot be reasoned with. Okay? They are unreasonable. You and I are unreasonable when we're in that cave moment. Not even God himself changed his mind. Now, God can do whatever he wants to do. He could change our mind if he wants to. But that, it just shows you how unreasonable Elijah was. Then uh, God very gently afterwards, he says, now actually, right, he corrects some things. He tells him that I'm going to give you a mission. You still have stuff for me to do. Uh, you're going to anoint these people. You're going to do such and such, and, and now it's time to go. But you see how gentle that uh, the, the Lord has been uh, with Elijah here. He's gentle with us, and that's how gentle we need to be with other people. I want, I want to show you one thing here, okay? If, if you turn to 2 Timothy 2, this is really important. I want, to, I want to show you this. 2 Timothy chapter number 2, okay, in verse number 24. Here is how the Bible tells us we need to behave towards unreasonable people. Okay? Here's what it says in 2.24. And the servant of the Lord must, must not strive, but be what? Gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. That's what Elijah was doing. If God peradventure, that means perhaps, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth... You see that? They're believing lies. We're not going to convince them. It's, uh, but God can perhaps do that. Okay, verse 26. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the what? Devil. It's a satanic thing. Okay? Who are taken captive by him at his will. What this is saying is that some people who are snared in this thing, 
you're not going to convince them with logic and persuasive words to get out of the cave. Sometimes all we can do is be very gentle, very meek, very patient, and very much on our knees praying for them that God will turn their heart. He can, and he does. But, uh, but our, our worry needs to be redirected into prayer. Now look at this here. In uh, 2 Timothy, you're in 2. Let's go to three, chapter 3, verse number 3. It talks about how uh, bad things are going to get in the last days. And it has this whole list of uh, things that people are going to be like. Verse number 3, without natural affection. The next word is truce breakers. What does that mean? A, a truce is some, it's like, a, like a call for peace. When two nations say, we're going we're gonna to say a truce. That means we're going to stop fighting. We're going to reconcile. So that word, truce breakers, literally means unwilling to be reconciled with others, unwilling to be at peace with others, unwilling to call for a truce. Okay? There are some people who they will not be at peace with you. Okay? They're, they're unreasonable, unreconcilable, and what we just saw is that they're in the snare of the devil himself. There's not much we can do about that other than pray very fervently with them. And then in verse number 5, you can see what we're supposed to do. It says, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, here's, here's what we should do. From such turn away. That means you, you don't keep trying to reason with unreasonable people. You see what I mean? It says, uh, just like these people in verse 7, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're resisting the truth. And so... Um, we, you and I, what I'm saying, okay, is that here are people who it's a satanic thing that they're believing a lie, okay, and maybe they have some sort of beef with you. You're not going to reason with them. That's, that's God's job to be able to do that. But even people like Elijah can be snared in the trap of the devil so that he's believing a lie and is unreasonable, Okay. Remember a couple chapters before, I hope you're not drowning yet, please stick with me. A couple chapters before, Elijah confronts Ahab. And Ahab said, hey, you're the guy that stopped the rain. You're the troubler of Israel. In Ahab's mind, he was believing a lie. He was thinking that Elijah's the problem. He's the problem. Elijah says, no, you're the troubler, you're the troubler of Israel, pal. You're the problem. Okay. Both of them were not uh, right at the same time, you see? I mean, uh, mutually exclusive, okay? Ahab was sincerely believing a lie. And Elijah was not going to logic with him. He wasn't going to say, no, actually, you know, let me, let me explain this to you. No, he says, I want to give you a demonstration of God's power. He'll, he'll tell you who's telling the truth here, Okay. The, the war that we're trying to win in our minds with someone who is really bothering us, who is irreconcilable, who will not have peace with us, that war is won on our knees. And God can do that. Okay, let's move on really quickly. So we saw the cause of it is the devil. Secondly, the purpose of it. Uh, what is the purpose of these times that God does allow? God doesn't test our faith for no reason. Okay, so why does he do this? In 1 Kings 19.4, here's what Elijah says. So, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might not die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. 
That's a very strange statement. Okay? So he, he is just despondent and rejected. And um, what he's telling God, he's saying, look, look, look what happened. You know, we, we do all this great stuff on Mount Carmel, and there isn't this, like, you know, immediate revival that takes place. I failed. Okay? You understand that? That's really weird thinking of him. Thinking that God is just going to boom, every, every heart is going to turn and everything is going to change overnight. And Elijah has to do some rethinking. He has to do some changing in his mind. Okay? That's what cave moments do for us. It makes us start asking some hard questions like, hey, is my pri- are my priorities right? Maybe is there some sin in my life? Maybe is there like something that I'm not seeing straight? I'm getting tunnel vision here. Those cave moments are when God like, you know, separates everything else out from our life other than us and the cave, and we get to ask some hard questions again. Okay, um, What does Elijah's statement reveal? He thought that a lot of God's plan depended on him, and he felt inadequate to do that. Okay? God, uh, God told him in that cave moment that, look, my entire plan for all of human race does not revolve around you. <laughs> okay? I'm sorry to break it to you, but you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little insight that I'm going to use these couple of people. You're going to be used to help those couple of people. And for the rest of your ministry, you're going to be preparing. You're going to be the kingmaker, basically. But you're not going to be the prophet on Mount Carmel anymore. You'll do some great things, but I'm transitioning you to a different type of ministry. And Elisha had to be okay with that. That that cave moment is kind of a transition time where God has to correct our thinking. Okay, It takes some times of fear to slow down. And, and, and ask, okay, is my priorities right? Am I thinking straight? Um, when, when we think, okay, uh, uh, I'll say it like this, a lack of faith reveals that in, in that cave moment, we don't truly believe that God is on his throne. Amen. Okay? Amen. We find ourselves believing in our minds that, that God is on his throne, but in our hearts, Amen. okay, um, we're fearing in our hearts that he's not, he's not getting the job done quite right. Uh, God is ruling the world, but we think we could be doing a better job than he. Okay? That's, that's an irrational fear. The cave reminds us who's on the throne. Okay? Fear tries to get you to believe that your life is in someone else's hands. Either your hands, or in a Jezebel's hands, or someone's hands other than God's. Okay? Um, let me, let me tell you a quick story. I, I have time here. You, you know the name, okay, but you may not know this part of the story. Because just like Elijah's story, this part sometimes gets left out. Her name was Fanny Crosby, okay? Uh, you may know the name. She is the famous hymn writer, wrote between eight and 9,000 hymns, okay? Um, you know, some, some of those hymns, Blessed Assurance, To God Be the Glory, Rescue the Perishing, etc., Okay? Fanny Crosby did some amazing things. But here's the part of the story you might not know. Fanny Crosby got married when she was 38 years old. She married a man uh, named Alexander Van Alstein. She called him Van. She was a little bit older um, to, to be getting married. She was 38. He was 27. And maybe up until that point, she might have had in her mind, maybe I will never get married. Maybe I'll never have kids. Now she does. 
Okay? Um, it's, the marriage started off great. They were happy. And in about uh, a year after their, you know, they got married, uh, she has a baby girl who passed away a couple days after birth in her sleep. Her only child that she'd ever have. Very soon after, her husband kind of went into a depression and a recluse. He himself was blind too. And that really strained the marriage. We don't know all of the details, but what we do know is that it was very rocky and they ended up separating uh, permanently. And so here is Fanny Crosby, the person that is being used of God to write all these hymns, and that was something that weighed very, very heavily on her heart. That was a cave moment. And in that moment, she could choose to wither up and die in the cave or understand that God still has a purpose for your life. There, 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 there's the rest of your life to live. After that, okay, after that cave moment, possibly her lowest time in life, okay, that after that, she wrote, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Her prayer from her heart, do you think that she would have had that song in her had she not have gone through that? After, after that, um, inspired by her, her daughter's death, she wrote, Safe in the Arms of Jesus that same year. After that, she wrote Blessed Assurance. After that, she wrote To God Be the Glory. After that, she wrote All the Way My Savior Leads Me, Near the Cross. I am thine, O Lord. Tell me the story of Jesus. I doubt that you or I could name a hymn that Fanny Crosby wrote before that time. That's what the cave moment did. Okay? It it was very difficult. It wasn't a good thing. It's not a good thing when Jezebel sends the messenger to make you in fear. Okay? That, 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 that's not a good thing. But God can use bad things. In fact, Romans 8.28 says he uses all things that happen and he'll bring some good out of them to them who love Lord. Okay? If we don't have faith, we, we, we can choose to stay in the cave. Or we can choose to let God do something afterwards. You remember in Abraham's case, he was tempted when God told him to offer his son Isaac, right? And, God pro- and Abraham proved his faith, right? He puts Isaac on the altar, and God says, All right, I just wanted to test you, okay, to make sure that, that you were willing, okay? But with Fanny Crosby, God didn't give her back her daughter. Okay, with Patch the Pirate, when he lost his eye, God didn't give him back his eye. What he did instead was give him a ministry from that point on, from that cave moment. Sometimes we're asked to do something that Abraham never did. Okay? We, we have a Bible that tells the story of, of Jesus' crucifixion and, and how God brought all of these bad things together for good, and we know the end of the story, but our story is not in the Bible. We don't, know. we don't know how it's going to work out. And we have to just trust the person who is on the throne, okay? who can use those cave experiences uh, for us. You, you heard the Patch the Pirate song, Oh, rejoice in the Lord. This is after he lost the eye. He makes no mistakes. He knoweth the end of each path that I take. For when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. Okay, this line, catch this. Now I can see 
Testing comes from above. Wait a second, you lost your eye. You're saying you can see better without your eye? He says, yes, now I can see. Testing comes from above. God strengthens his children and purges in love. My father knows best and I trust in his care. Through purging, more fruit I will bear. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, though your testing seems long. In darkness, he giveth a song. You, you may know the story, but you may not know this part of the story. His name is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was one of the figures of the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edward, Edwards, George Whitfield, and the Wesley brothers, Charles and uh, John Wesley, okay? I, I can't explain to you how important a figure Jonathan Edwards was to the Great Awakening or how important the Great Awakening was to America. It wasn't just a revival. It was a national revival, like, not just a, a group of people having a prayer meeting for several weeks. It was entire cities turning to God. The Great Awakening shook America. And Jonathan Edwards spoke that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. God used him powerfully. Um, I don't know what, would, what America would be like without some of those figures. Jonathan Edwards was greatly used by God. Then about 10 years after that, okay, when the Great Awakening, had, it hadn't fizzled out, okay, but like the high point had ended. Jonathan Edwards got voted out of his church. Okay? Jonathan Edwards, this guy, he, he got voted out of his church, okay, uh, for doctrinal reasons and for just some petty reasons. One, he told the people that I don't want unsaved people taking the Lord's Supper. People weren't happy about that. Okay? He, I mean, and then after he died, several years after, I mean, no one was doing that anymore. But he, he took a big stand. The other thing is that he, he kind of rubbed people the wrong way. From behind the pulpit, there was like some wrongdoing with, with some of the teenagers or something. And from behind the pulpit, he made this announcement. He says, I need to see so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so after, uh, after the service to talk about this issue. Well, all the parents thought that, oh, you just called my child out like insinuating that they're part of the problem. Well, he just wasn't a very polished guy. All he wanted to do was talk to them to find out what the, uh, what the facts were. These weren't the guys in trouble. That graded the parents the wrong way. There was some just strife. They voted him out of the church 90% to 10%. He had a wife and 11 kids. That was his sole source of income. Okay, then they had the nerve, okay, uh, he's living in the, in the parsonage, un, unpaid, and they're like, we're, we're having trouble finding a pastor who wants to pastor our church. <laughs> you know, no, really. And they're like, can, can you fill in the pulpit? Unpaid. And he did. Very graciously, he did. Then he became a missionary after that to, uh, to Native American Indians that were close by. After that, he wrote two very important works during that period, Freedom of the Will, and The Life and Diary of David Brainerd. And those two works were, I mean, they, they, they were incredible. What I'm trying to say is those last seven years of his life, God still had a mission and a plan, okay? He could have very easily and with a lot of rationale, I mean, for good reason, said, okay, I'm done. Okay, I'll sit in the pew, but I'm done, but God said, no, I, look, I have an Elisha I want you to anoint. I have a king I want you to anoint. I have some people I want you to train. I have some stuff left for you to do, okay? Take a little bit, eat some steak, rest, 
Now get up and get out of the cave. Okay? I got something for you to do. All right. So is the reason, um, is the reason maybe the Lord has um, rattled you a little bit, maybe a big bit, because my life is kind of built on a faulty foundation where I think, where my thinking is not right. Okay? Um, maybe, maybe asking the Lord to, to show you that. Now, lastly, and just with a couple, couple minutes here, the way through it. All right? Well, how do you get through this thing? Um, maybe, maybe I've convinced you that you don't need to be in the cave. Well, how do you get out of the cave? God took care of Elijah physically first. He didn't just come to him and say, look, you just need to start reading your Bible a lot more, okay? You need to be praying a lot more, and I'll see you in a couple days. <laughs> he said, he, there were some physical needs, okay? He said, you need to take a break. You need to take some time. Um, it's okay to see a doctor if you're not feeling good, okay? Like, there, there's a physical aspect to this. Then God was just very present with Elijah. We need to get very present with God, in, uh, then the Lord asks him some simple questions. He gets him thinking again. And we need to get thinking again. Then he gave Elijah his word, the still small voice. I, I have something personal for you in my word. Then he corrected his thinking very gently. And then he gave him a mission and said, now, now I have some stuff for you to do. Okay? Romans 10.17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. When we're bathing our mind in the Bible, and we finally feel God's presence again, we're starting to get out of the cave. Now, Elijah, I don't think he got it 100%. I don't think it really clicked, okay? Because he gets out of the cave, and he doesn't anoint anyone, okay? He, he throws his mantle on Elisha, and that's not really anointing. It's kind of, but he doesn't anoint the other two people. Elisha does that for him. Okay, later on, um, he doesn't quite get it all. But what he does get, he, he, he does something for the Lord. Now, how exactly that works out or when the moment that kind of clicked that, all right, I need to get up and I need to get out of the cave, I don't know. And I don't know what that moment would be for you. But this is kind of what God did for Elijah. And if we follow that out, there's going to come a day where you feel like, all right, it's, it's, time, to, it's time to get involved again. It's time, to, it's time to go. Um, it's time to get out of this cave of fear. All right? And lastly, let, your, let me remind you of this. Jesus knew something about fear. In the last days of his life, he's in a garden called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, if it's possible, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. How do we know he was scared? He was afraid. The Bible said that he sweat great drops of blood. Was that because of sorrow? No. When you're sorrowful, you don't sweat. You sweat when you are afraid. And he's sweating great drops of blood. You sweat when you're in great fear. That was not a sin for Jesus, 100% man, 100% God, to be in fear. It would have been a sin for Jesus to live in fear. It's not a sin for me and you to visit the Garden of Gethsemane, it is a sin to live in that garden like a petrified tree and not decide to get up and go on to Calvary Road. Right? You, know what the fa- uh, you know what the Father does not, knew- does not do when Jesus is about to be crucified? He doesn't do 
what he does for Abraham and says, all right, I'm just, I just wanted to see Jesus if you were willing to be sacrificed. No. He lets him be crucified. He lets him die and take the pains of hell on the cross for me and you. So before that, okay, before that, Jesus did great things before Calvary. He taught great things before Calvary. He had a wonderful ministry before Calvary. But if Calvary didn't happen, if Calvary didn't happen, then the fear of tomorrow, okay, um, then we would have every reason to fear tomorrow. But because Jesus got up off of his knees in fear and decided, I'm going to set my face towards Calvary and do this for you, that brought about our salvation and the greatest thing he ever did in his ministry here on earth. And it happened after the cave. It happened after Gethsemane. It happened after the anxiety and the fear that none of us have ever experienced. That's what Jesus did for us so that we don't have to fear tomorrow. That gives us our hope. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. So here's the question. Are you fearing tomorrow? It might be uh, any number of things. Health. It might be finances. It might be a person who is irreconcilable. And did, did, did you catch this? God did, not kill, uh, God did not kill Jezebel in Elijah's time. When Elijah got up and left the cave, Jezebel was still alive. Um, but... She wasn't messing with Elijah. He had conquered that one. Um, maybe it's, it's, a, it's a person. Maybe it's, a, um, it's, a, it's something bad that happened in the past that you don't want to happen again in the future. Maybe it's something that you, you're not forgiving yourself for. Um, what we understand from some of these stories, Elijah and some of these people from the past and Jesus himself, is that there is a life and a mission and a hope beyond the cave for you and me.